Welcome to The Five Things This Week in Social. We're the Webby award-winning podcast that breaks down five topics in social content and the internet at large. If you are a marketer, an advertiser, or a creator, then trust me when I say you are listening to the right podcast. Today on the pod, we have a very special conversation plan. We are excited to present a new kind of episode that we debuted this summer called Five Things With. This one-on-one conversation is an opportunity for us to showcase a creator or marketer and talk about five topics that are on their mind. And our guest today is Amelia Harubi. Amelia Harubi is a writer, educator, and podcaster with a PhD in philosophy from DePaul University. Over the past decade, Amelia has been a university professor, a community organizer, and a radio DJ. These days, she is the founder and executive producer of Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio that supports women and non-binary small business owners in creating purposeful, powerful podcasts. As if that wasn't enough, what really caught my eye about Amelia and why we are so excited to chat with her today is that in April of 2021, during the stressful days of the pandemic, Amelia left social media. She then launched Off the Grid, a podcast that talks about her departure from social media and how others can do it too without losing their clients. On her podcast, she interviews former influencers and business leaders and shares stories, strategies, and experiments for growing your business with radical generosity and energetic sovereignty. Off the Grid was ranked number one on the Good Pods Top 100 chart in the indie sales category. Amelia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Joey. I'm very excited to be here and talk about five things social, but maybe not so social media right now. Yeah, maybe not. Okay, so we always like to get things started with a really easy question. So here it is. Question for you, my friend. With the holidays approaching, are you someone who likes to get your gift shopping done early or do you wait till the last minute? I am an early gift shopper. Let me tell you, I was just in my family group chat this week, hounding everyone to give me their requests because Black Friday is coming up and I'm trying to hit those sales early. So I'm definitely that early shopper, family planner type of person. Well, I am too. I'm Joey Scarillo. And just like you, I am also an early bird when it comes to shopping. I love nothing more than a good Black Friday deal or Cyber Monday. I just love that mental clarity of checking everything off the list early. The more I can get done before December 1st, the better. All right. Speaking of lists, here are today's five things we will be discussing. First up, social media's impact on mental health. Then we'll get into data privacy. Then our third thing will be Substack as a social platform. And then our fourth thing today will be online dating and personal relationships. And then we will round it out and take it home with alternatives to doom scrolling during all this upcoming family time. All right, let's dive in with our first thing, social media's impact on mental health. Let's get into it. It's a big topic that seems to always come back around and around, time after time, study after study. The effects of social platforms on our mental health. The effects of social media hit especially hard for teens. If you Google mental health and social media at almost any time, You will be pointed to a new study or a think piece about how this or that platform is good or bad. 
Recently, a former Facebook engineer testified to the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and addressed Meta's awareness of the harms inflicted on children and teens by the platform. They criticized top executives, including Mark Zuckerberg, for ignoring evidence of harm and accused the company of employing distraction and denial tactics. Senators, including Republicans Josh Haley and Marsha Blackburn, expressed serious concerns about the addictions of social media, the spread of harmful content, and emphasized the need for legislative action and accountability from companies like Meta. Amelia, what do you think the right balance is? How much responsibility is on the platforms? How much is on the legislators? And how much is even on parents? Yeah, so this is obviously a huge topic. And I think that What's coming out through the most recent congressional hearing is more about the awareness that Meta has on the platform and the data that they collect around what teens are viewing and doing on these apps. And particularly in this Senate hearing, you have this former Meta employee talking about the ways that Meta is aware that I think it's one in eight teens have been sexually harassed on the platform. And they have data on how long teens are spending looking at potentially harmful imagery, whether that be related to sexual harassment or drug use or self-harm. And there are no behaviors or structures within the apps put in place to protect teens in their use of them. So what is the right mix of parental responsibility, governmental responsibility, platform responsibility? I don't know that I have the answer to that. But what we are seeing right now is that the senator out of Connecticut, I think Senator Blumenthal, has proposed this Kids Online Safety Act to try to sort of insert more government oversight of what's happening with kids and teens, particularly online. And a lot of this oversight exists in other countries. We definitely saw this happening. It exists in Europe with a lot of the GPDR policies and the fines that have been implemented as a result of those. The majority of them, I believe, are coming from fines specifically about the way that the privacy of kids and teens is being violated online. So it just feels like the U.S. is trying to get on board with a lot of governmental regulation that's already happening around the world. Yeah, it feels like the U.S. is definitely playing catch up, especially when you think about what's going on over in Europe and how aggressive they've been. Switching gears a little bit more personally, though. From conversations you've had on your podcast, what do you think adults, not necessarily parents, but adults can do to balance social media and their mental health? Yeah, so I think at this point, I have not encountered a single person these days who does not feel like social media has impacted their mental health in some way, whether it be a close friend of mine, you know, a fellow millennial or a Gen Z student of mine, or frankly, even my 75-year-old aunt with a Facebook profile is saying that she feels like it impacts her mental health. And so what can we do to take care of ourselves? Well, I think a lot of it starts with acknowledging that the platforms themselves are impacting how we feel, whether it be how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about family members, other people we know, or how we feel about world events. And then finding ways to change our behaviors on the apps. I found that the more people are aware of how scrolling and like liking and commenting and these behaviors we've been trained to do, like the more you understand how they impact your mind, the more you might be able to kind of interrupt those patterns for yourself. 
at the same time, I don't think it's fair to put it all on us. Like we have been trained into these behaviors and there's a lot of research that shows the way that our dopamine feedback loops keep us coming back for more and more and more of this online validation. And so that's where I do think it's the platforms have a responsibility to take better care of their users and to care about their mental health at all. And having seen that these platforms have no interest in doing that, that's where I think the government regulation really comes in. So I encourage people to track their time on apps, spend less time on social media, find ways to limit the specific behaviors that really upset you, but also find ways to hold the platforms and our civic institutions responsible for also taking care of us. Yeah, absolutely. I certainly use those blockers on my iPhone telling me, oh, you've been on this app for too long today. Time to move on. All right. Speaking of moving on, let's move on to our second thing today. All right. Let's talk about data privacy. Another huge topic. After Elon Musk transformed Twitter to X, it prompted the emergence of rival social platforms due to mounting concerns about user privacy. Twitter's advertising revenue plummeted by 55%. Daily active users decreased from 140 million to 121 million. Other apps have popped up like Blue Sky, Mastodon, and Meta's Threads all trying to dig into the text-based platform dominance once held by Twitter. Okay, so privacy worries are not unique to X, but they persist on other major platforms like Meta and Google as well. Extensive user data collection from targeted advertising often involves sensitive information. For instance, earlier this year, Meta and the U.S. Department of Justice settled after the DOJ found that Meta's algorithm allowed advertisers to exclude certain racial groups from seeing ads for things like housing, jobs, and financial services. These concerns are vast and serious. So what apps scare you the most about data privacy and what apps do you think are handling our data securely? Data privacy and the larger phenomenon of surveillance online and the concept of surveillance capitalism is what sent me off of social media in the first place. It was noticing how not only my online behavior, but my IRL behavior was being impacted by being served and seeing so many of these ads. So I had this day where I looked through my closet and realized that Almost all of the clothes I owned were these like consumer goods that were being pumped into my Instagram feed and realizing that like, what a boring style I had as a result. And that made me realize that if I wanted to get these people out of my head, I had to get off these platforms. The apps that I worry about the most, well, quite frankly, I don't trust anything that Meta puts out. They have shown time and time again that their user data is the most valuable product that they have, and they're not particularly invested in taking care of it in a personal responsibility, platform responsibility, or global responsibility level. So i am always been pretty wary of Facebook, Instagram, threads especially, has prompted a lot of questions around why are they collecting so much personal data. I also have been skeptical and critical of not a social media platform, but of Google. Their primary business has been in advertising and so collecting personal data, which they now do through a variety of devices. So you see Google acquire a company like Fitbit now giving them even more access to people's biometrics and things like that, which I worry about. In terms of what platforms do I prefer for data privacy, you know, it's a real toss up, but I do think we're seeing more platforms like 
Mastodon and Blue Sky that are trying to come out as these social networks that are more controlled by users and that are less about producing profit for investors. And so I think anytime the purpose of an app is to make the VC funders happy, we are the users are most likely to be exploited and have their data exploited as well. So you mentioned that data privacy was a big part of your decision to leave a lot of these platforms. Which platform went first? Or did you do it all in one foul swoop? I think at that point, I was primarily on Instagram and TikTok. And those were the two where I was really seeing like a direct link between everything that they were scraping off my phone and my own behavior and how I had to get off of them if I wanted to get back in touch with actually like what I cared about in the world. But previously I had been on Facebook, I had been on Twitter. Those I had left more just because I didn't enjoy the experience anymore. But Instagram and TikTok, I really left because of this privacy issue. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I try to dabble and really limit my time on all these platforms too. And data security is something that we are always keeping an eye out for because it is so it's so important and really something that I think a lot of people don't always really think about when they're using these platforms. Let's dive into number three. We're just going to keep making these hard left turns into the next thing because otherwise we would just be stuck talking about, you know, the last topic for the entire podcast because <laughs> there's so much depth here. But let's talk about Substack as a social platform. We like to talk about new platforms on this show, and it's good from time to time for us to revisit platforms that have actually been around for a while. And Substack, it, you know, is one that we really never talk about on this show. I mentioned earlier that, you know, over the past year or so, a bunch of new apps emerged on the scene, right? Blue Sky, Mastodon, Threads. But Substack is one that's been around actually since 2017, and it's a place for publishing subscription newsletters and so much more. Many people enjoy Substack newsletters, and many people use it for creating and receiving newsletters. The platform is different than blogging. On an episode of your show from earlier this year, you broke down why folks shouldn't leave social for greener pastures on Substack. So I'm curious about your experience on the platform and why you think it works and what the challenges are. Yeah, so Substack really launched as an email service provider. They intended to be the place for writers to launch newsletters that had at least a some sort of paid content component. And so over the past, as you mentioned, six years, we've seen all these writers go to Substack. Many writers that I follow and love reading what they write, like I subscribe to their Substack newsletters. But earlier this year, or even last, when you saw Elon Musk acquiring Twitter and people looking for Twitter alternatives, Substack really came forward and stepped into that space with the Substack app and the introduction of Notes. So Notes is now this short form feed that Substack users, whether you have a newsletter or not, can be posting to and sharing updates following writers they admire. So in addition to subscribing to their newsletter, now you can just follow them on notes and then also engaging in this space. And so on my show, I really make the case that I see a lot of folks leaving social media and heading to Substack. And if you're using it simply as your email service provider, I think that's great. It's a great free resource. But if you're really then investing all of your time on notes, it looks exactly like another social media platform and it functions in the same way. It has an algorithm that surfaces different things to you. You're liking, you're commenting, you're following people. And so, you know, my point in making that episode was just to try to point out that we're seeing more and more platforms start to look more and more like social media, even if that wasn't their initial 
intent. So why might somebody who, like me, never used the Substack app, why might somebody like me find Substack more enjoyable over, you know, longer form posts on X threads or the others? Yeah. So one thing we see with the Substack app is that email clients like Gmail or Outlook, they cut off emails at a certain point. So an email can only be so long. And part of what Substack is doing is getting writers there to write really long form. So when they do that, they're encouraging you go read in the app because it won't cut off what I wrote and you'll be able to read the full thing. They've also spent a lot of time building the UI of the app or the UX of the app. So it is really enjoyable to read on. It feels much more similar to reading an online newspaper or if you ever read through the New York Times app, it feels much more like that than it does reading in an email client app. So I think they're really trying to entice people over there through the reading experience. And then there are these kind of host of other things that happen there. So you can elect to only receive Substack posts in the app and never get them in your email. So it means well, you might sign up for someone's newsletter, but it's never landing in your inbox. It's only showing up in the app for you. And there's this sort of pitch that's like, everyone's inbox is like a place of total chaos. You probably want fewer emails. Go read in the app instead. <laughs> I also think once you get in there, I will admit like I've fallen prey to the desire to scroll. Like then you get you get into notes and you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and they show you more notes. And once again, it's just back like you're on a different version of Twitter is how it feels. I feel like you were describing my inbox, which <laughs> is like an eternal hellscape that I mean, across all of my email addresses. <laughs> so I might actually benefit from something like this. And who knows? Maybe we'll do the uh, Five Things newsletter in Substack someday. No promises. But <laughs> let's talk about online dating and personal relationships here. So a few weeks ago on this show, we discussed how Tinder's popularity is slipping with Gen Z, who are in search of more, quote unquote, authentic connections, that word that we use so, so much. Recently, we just heard that founder and CEO of Bumble, Whitney Wolf Hurd, is stepping down into a new role in the company and passing the baton to a new CEO. X is talking about a future project incorporating dating into their platform. Gizmodo reported on a new poll from Axios showing that 79% of college students don't use any dating app, which might be something that you might know a little bit about. Do you think that this decline in college students using dating apps says more about Gen Z or more about us millennials who popularize them? And from your point of view, you know, somebody who works at a university, how have you seen, you know, relationships change amongst uh, college students? Yeah, so I think that one of the big shifts that has happened on social media over the past five to eight years is that social media originated or Facebook, in fact, originated as a place to go to represent yourself quote unquote, authentically online. And there was this expectation that you were showing up online, at least in a relative like close semblance to how you would appear in person. And over the past decade, that has, I think, completely devolved. And now more often than not, people go online to misrepresent themselves. There's so much, whether it be by filtering how you look in images or reshaping them in apps, or we see the proliferation of online scammers and the ways that they use social media apps to scam people. And so I think through that evolution, what happens to online dating is it becomes a place where you can't trust anyone. And we all know that trust is required as the foundation of a healthy relationship. And so if you have to start from this place of not trusting the app and not trusting anyone that you meet there, how is that ever going to lead to 
a relationship that you want to be in. I think you're better off meeting people in person, which is what these stats are reflecting. I also would say when I read the stat about college students, I do think college is a time when you are surrounded by other people who are like in your age group, share your interests and are ready to date. And like once we get out of college, we're not so saturated in dateable options. And I think dating apps can become <laughs> more appealing again. Everyone I talk to who's dating in their 30s hates the apps, but is still on them in some way or at some times. And I think that has to do with the sort of sense of scarcity of dateable people in your location. So what have I seen? I mean, my students were rarely talking to me about their dating lives, <laughs> but I do think that they seemed much less focused on meeting an app. They're much more likely to meet someone in a class or an on-campus event than they were in an app. But, you know, I met my spouse on OkCupid a million years ago when I was in college. So it's interesting to hear that these trends have shifted so much in the past five to 10 years. Yeah, because I am curious if you think that it says more about us as a generation 10 years ago or this current generation just in that search for authenticity. But switching gears a little bit, do you think that it says more about us as millennials using the apps, you know, like we said, like 10 years ago as a generation? Or do you think there's something inherently different about the Gen Z not wanting to use it as often now? Yeah, I think the proliferation of social media apps has like totally changed Gen Z's experience of the internet, of dating and of life in general. In a way that for millennials, it was all like new and fun and interesting. And we were able to bridge dating, IRL dating and online dating. And I think that Gen Z is saying like, no, we've been saturated with apps since our birth and we have to step away from them at this point to be able to like have healthy relationships. So I guess my answer is like a little bit of both, but I think it has, it's in like that the generational shift from millennial to Gen Z, I think is inextricably linked with the evolution of social media. I completely agree. I mean, for us, it was like, hey, look at this cool new thing. And and for Gen Z, it's like, hey, look at that thing that, you know, you guys were obsessed with. <laughs> we're going to we're going to not do that. Um, yeah. OK, let's let's dive right into our fifth thing. So our fifth and final thing before we all take off for the holidays. Let's talk about how to unplug, find alternatives to doom scrolling because the news these days, let's face it, is not great. On this show, we have already talked about mental health and data privacy, and that's just in this industry. So not to sugarcoat it, but the world can be scary. So Amelia, for you, someone who doesn't use social media, how do you unplug? Yeah. So I think especially as we're heading into this holiday season, I don't know if anyone else does this, but when I go to a family holiday event, I feel like I spend at least half the time staring at my phone and scrolling through various apps. And so I think that you kind of have two options if you want to quit doom scrolling through the holidays. One is to unplug is to put your phone away, is to find other things to do. So that could be being in conversation with family members. If that feels fraught, you could pull out one of my favorite tricks, which is like playing a board game or doing a directed activity or going to a movie where everyone has to be quiet. I often try to reorient from a political conversation to a activity where we don't have to talk. But also if you want to stay on your phone but quit doom scrolling, I would encourage you to be using those time blockers on apps or deleting the apps for these periods 
periods of time. And you can find other things to do on your phone, whether it be play Candy Crush, pick another game that you want to beat through the holiday season. You know, I play my partner does super long form crossword puzzles at most family events that they have to go to with me. (laughs) And just like spending time allowing yourself, giving yourself permission to scroll, but redirecting yourself away from the apps that are just making you feel worse and worse, I think can be really supportive. I'm not here to shame anybody for spending a whole Hanukkah dinner on your phone instead of staring at your family. (laughs) But I don't think you have to do it in a way that makes you feel worse just because you were looking at your phone. Yeah, I I do find that when I do try to step away from social media, which, you know, has been a lot these days, I do get lost in in online games. I tend to like go towards like Tetrisy type games, you know, and that also has its own addictive qualities, too. But for you, family movies, is, is that a standard practice? Maybe at my house around the holidays, the TV is on all the time with the whole family. So who knows? Maybe maybe the answer is just, you know, Muppet Christmas Carol or something <laughs> nice and easy. Yeah, I think a lot of people watch sports for this reason. Yeah. Like it's becomes a thing they can do together. But I know nothing about sports. So I'm much more likely to put on the Hallmark movie channel and give us all something to make fun of together instead of cheering on a sports team I don't know about. But I think, again, for me, it's just about taking care of yourself. And I just don't know anyone that feels better after doom scrolling. So I encourage all of us to find ways to be on or off our phones that feel more supportive to us, especially throughout this season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a lot to look forward to. And hopefully everybody here can find some time to spend with their friends and family throughout the next upcoming weeks and month or so. But that does it for us. I mean, we flew through those five things so fast. Again, want to say thank you to our guest today, Amelia Harubi. Truly, thank you so, so much for joining us. Oh, this was a blast. Thanks so much for having me, Joey. Absolutely. You can listen to Amelia's podcast, Off the Grid, wherever you find podcasts. And to learn more about Amelia and her podcast, visit offthegrid.fun. What a great website. This week, we would like to give a special thank you and shout out to Lauren Passell. Quick program note here. We will be off next week and we will not have a podcast released the Monday after Thanksgiving so we can take some time to recharge our batteries. But we will be back in December with more five things. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, review us, like us or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints or just send us a thing you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at Not as fun of a handle. Connect with us on Spotify by sharing your thoughts on the show. Just look for the Q&A field. This podcast is produced by me, Joey Scarillo, and Samantha Geller, with post-production by Amanda Fuentes, Guy Rosemarin, and Ned Martin at Gramercy Park Studios. Marketing and communications support from Adrian Hopkins, Christina Hyde, and Jada Hines. Listen to Gray Matter, Gray's other Webby Award-winning podcast, where we speak to founders, artists, and innovators about bringing their ideas to life. It's a great listen for a long car ride, a long walk, or to just disconnect for a while. All four seasons are available to listen to now. So you can find Gray Matter, a podcast about ideas, wherever you find this podcast. Okay, that's it for us. You may hear me say thank you at the end of every show, but today I just want to make sure you really hear the gratitude from me and all of my teammates and colleagues here at Gray when I say thank you. Be social. 
Ray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.